Convict's Drunken Horror Adventures. This is Travis. Uh, shortly, I'll be joined by Blake, if I'm not already. I have not the studio at the moment. Uh, it's kind of been a busy night. It is the night before Halloween. But in my neighborhood, due to the fact that there's going to be, quote-unquote, severe weather tomorrow night, uh, we did the trick-or-treating tonight. So I took all the little ones trick-or-treating in my neighborhood uh, my neighborhood's usually the best neighborhood in the area for trick-or-treating, or one of the best, and um, I don't know. Uh, it really fell off because we had to do it October 30th this year. It did not have the, let's say, pizzazz that it usually does. Um, not so many, uh, well, I mean, there were plenty of trick-or-treaters out, but there, there were a whole lot of houses that ran out of candy. Now, granted, I do want to say that I got started late on this whole thing, Blake's here. Let's see. Hey, I'm on mute him here. See if we can talk. What's up, buddy? What's up? I've been I've been listening the past couple of minutes. I missed the cue on when to unmute myself because I was just finishing up watching Dahmer and I was distracted. I'm sorry. You you were watching Dahmer? <laughs> yeah, I just finished it. <laughs> Are you talking about my friend Dahmer? No, I'm talking about Jeremy Renner's Dahmer. Ah, okay, okay. I was just curious, you know, because my friend Dahmer is pretty new, and so figured that would be the one you were talking about. But it's good to have you here, Blake. Man, I missed you. I missed you too, buddy. Uh, it's just been sort of crazy. I've been doing a lot of things, but I haven't been forgetting you guys. I've been thinking about the show a lot, and uh, I've done so many other ones lately, you know, and I feel bad that the last time I tried to get on, I just was under the weather, man. You know, normally I'm there if I'm not sick. Uh, dude, everybody's been sick lately in my area, so I totally get it. You know what I mean? But, Damn you know, weather. weather changes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just can't make up its mind. Tonight, it was super warm. It was a perfect night for trick-or-treating, I have to say. But it just sucks that we had to do it the night before Halloween. That That's a bitch. I mean, I was getting mad about it at first, but then I was like, I mean, does it really matter? Well, you know, my wife is one of those people that... Uh, She's like she would sign the petition or vote for Halloween being moved to the week, you know, the Saturday before, uh, because it's been literally on a weekday. It seems like for several years now, and that really makes it hard to go out and enjoy. When you and I were kids, and Vic too, it always usually happened on the weekend because that's the best time to go. Do it, you know, haunted houses, and then go trick or treating. Stay out till twelve one o'clock in the morning, or whatever. Get your candy, go home, eat it, get sick of shit, and then there you go, you know? Well, I want to say I'm opposed to changing Halloween, but if they, if they do, as long as it stays in October, I'll be okay. You know what I mean? Right. I'm the same way. I don't like them changing it, but I also don't like the fact that I can't really take my kids out on a weeknight because they have school the next day, you know? So it's not yeah. like I can keep them out late. So it's it's been a bit problematic these past few years. <clears throat> an interesting time in our country. There's a lot of changes going on, um, and this is just one of those things um, to where there's people like me that are resistant to change, but then when you really look at it, it's like, why? You know, you know what I mean? Like, I can't really explain why other than tradition. I don't have any other reason. Right. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things, I guess, left over from when we were kids and we thought that, you know, things were never going to change like they were. I mean, uh, who would have thought that, you know, when we were kids, we would be thinking about 2018 and what would be going on there. Uh, I bet we would have never dreamed in our wildest dreams that things that are happening now were going to happen. We would have thought, oh, it's something you see in some fucked up movie, you know. But here, here we are, and here it is. 
Yep, so it I sort agree of fits with in with the topic of discussion tonight, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it does indeed. And, you know, that's the interesting thing about tonight is that we're fucking 80-year anniversary of this thing. It's crazy. Um, obviously, if you guys saw the description, we're talking about the War of the Worlds 80th anniversary tonight. Um, and, of course, I'm talking about the radio broadcast, not the actual book, um, which, of course, was written 1898 by H.G. Wells. But, of course, it inspired um, the Orson Welles radio broadcast on October 30th, 1938. And here we are, 80 years later, talking about the famous broadcast taking place in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. And, Blake, um, I'm sure I've mentioned this to you before because, you know, I, I talk so much that it's hard not to mention just about everything in my life. I went to Grover's Mill about eight years ago now. It was a yeah. little town. They had a cool little coffee shop called Grover's Mill Coffee. Um, had uh, all sorts of War of the World stuff inside of there. And then they had a monument, um, <clears throat> like in the Grover's Mill Park or by their pond or whatever. And it's got, you know, where the Martians landed. Really neat stuff. Just fun for me. And in 20 years, I plan to go back for the 100-year anniversary. I was really sad I didn't get to be there this past week for the uh, festivities. You know, they had a whole lot going on there. It's kind of their little claim to fame. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and again, I think that in 20 years, you know, the 100th, the 100th anniversary is quite a quite a memorable and significant special time to uh, to be there. I have not been, but again, there's there's lots of things that I'm about to start doing that I haven't done before as far as traveling and seeing places, and I was kind of inspired by your trip to uh, Massachusetts, you know, mm-hmm. so, which I'm you sure that was amazing. Oh you yeah, your wife I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. You know, I discovered. Speaking of, I discovered something that I don't know that you know because a lot of people don't know it uh, about a place that's supposed. To, it's a haunted house. One of those haunted attractions where you're supposed to get your money back. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. We may not have time to get into it right now. But remind me towards the end of the show. I have to tell you this story because it will it will creep you out, man. Okay. Okay, absolutely. I'll try to remember it. Uh, I've begun drinking, so we'll see how that will <laughs> how that well, goes. Well, I'll remember it because I haven't been drinking, so you know. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, um, so Blake, there, there's one of two places that I've heard of War of the Worlds. Okay, when I was a kid, the first time I heard about War of the Worlds. Now, obviously, War of the Worlds has been around my entire life, and then you know, three generations before that. But uh, there was a TV show called War of the Worlds, and I think it came on NBC. In fact, uh-huh. fuck it, I'll look it up and find out uh, when it came uh, on and, you know, what year. So Wikipedia you go, <laughs> Wikipedia you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. War of the Worlds NBC, that's what I'm trying to look at. Uh, but, of course, it's not so easy. Um, War of the Worlds TV show, how about that? My Google search here. Okay, so there's a TV series from 1988 to 1990. And I remember War of the Worlds, the TV show, so that was probably the first time I'd heard of it. I was six years old whenever it came out. And it was really weird, but it was one of those shows like Tour of Duty, which I think it aired back-to-back on, where major characters, and this is before Walking Dead, would die. You know what I mean? They would die week after week. So it wasn't the type of thing that you had seen, you know, like in the 80s. And for me, it was a huge deal, Uh, especially as a six-year-old kid. It blew my fucking mind that you had these constant characters getting wiped out. So that was really where my... Um, knowledge of War of the Worlds came from. 
Now, it's nothing like, you know, like the story and the radio broadcast or anything. It's just the words War of the Worlds stuck in my head after that. But um, there's another place where my War of the Worlds knowledge had come from as a child. And this is a movie, and Blake, I don't know if you ever saw this movie. It was called Space Invaders from 1990. Have you ever seen that movie? I believe I have. It's one of those cheesy kind of, yeah. Yes, that's the one. Well, I think I have. <laughs> just, just give everybody a little plot of it real quick that's never seen it. Uh, dim-witted Martians drop into a little Illinois town on the day that the local radio station happens to rebroadcast Orson Welles' 1938 War of the Worlds. And they think it's for real, and that they think that they're being directed to attack Earth. So it's it's a little comedy, but it's it's good stuff, uh, at least as far as I remember. I haven't seen it probably, I don't know, 25 years probably. I'd have to watch it again and see how it is. Um, it's 5.3 on IMDb, so it's not universally beloved or anything, but it feels like something I watched a lot as a kid. So anyway, those are my two main influences from War of the Worlds, at least in my childhood. What about you, Blake? Do you remember maybe even... The first time you had heard anything like War of the Worlds when you were a, a child? I, I do. I was reading about it in, a, in a, an English book. You know, I was taking, I was in school and I was reading about radio broadcast and uh, reading about the power of uh, of radio before you know television broke into the mainstream and sort of became everybody's go-to media source. You know, and and we were reading about adaptations. Uh, that was the, one of the subjects: adaptations of books done for screen for radio and, and like for stage. So that came up uh, and it happened to be where the, the description of it just, it, it enamored me. It was like, wow, this was done in such a way that people actually believed this was happening, you know? And, and when you listen to the original broadcast, which I was listening to some of it before I finished Dahmer, um, you hear the way that it's done you know, no commercial breaks really, and if when there is a commercial break, it's it's an announcer letting you know this, this, and that, and they're giving you names of people. Professor Pearson, you know, who's a you know an astronomer and you know astrology, you know, they give you all these names, and it sounds legitimate. And, and the way it's done, you know, speaks to the power of Orson Welles as an actor and an orator, because I don't think it would have been quite as resonant with people as it has been were it not for him doing that, you know, doing the radio broadcast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you know, it was a, it was part of their anthology series, the Mercury Theater on the Air. And if you look up Mercury Theater on the Air, there's a website with all the Mercury Theater on the Air broadcast, including War of the Worlds. So you can listen to that for free right now. Or you can go to YouTube, or you can look it up on whatever your podcast server is. It's all over the place. It's free, public domain. You and I could go out and make a War of the Worlds movie right now if we wanted to. It's kind of like House on Haunted Hill. It's kind of like Night of the Living Dead. It is, you know, public domain, like I said. So Orson Welles, he takes over this thing and decides he's going to do a Mercury Theater on the air production of it. But he kind of spins it on its head a little bit, and he does it in the form of he changes it from London or England, where the original War of the Worlds took place, the book, and he moves it to Grover's Mill, New Jersey, by Trenton, New Jersey, or by Princeton. And so he's doing this broadcast. Uh, on the CBS radio network. And, of course, it's their Halloween episode. Again, Sunday, October 30th, 1938. Um, 
and again, it's the way they do it, the way it's presented. Um, if you're not listening from the start, you could totally see how somebody could get sucked into this thing and think it's the real deal, especially if you changed over from another channel. And keep in mind, we had the war scare going on at the time, too, World War II. Oh, yeah, and in the broadcast, they talk about, it. you know, the war scare is kind of subsiding a little bit, and people are, men are getting their jobs back and, and working more. And, and if they had done a poll, uh, and 32 million people were listening by radio because that was the main form of, of entertainment outside of reading, you know, going to see like a player or something. It, it was radio. People had radios. It was easy to get a radio. They weren't terribly expensive. And, and you'd sit and listen as a family uh, on the weekend, you know, on the evenings, listen to the president talk or whatever. You know, they, they used to call them the fireside chat. And then, you know, you can listen to stuff like this and The Shadow and, you know, Superman and all this other stuff. So, yeah, that was the mainstream form of of communication and entertainment. So uh, I think I give him all the credit in the world for being diligent enough to, and, and you know, intelligent enough to see that uh, for what it could be, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely, and that's the interesting thing about it is that, and you, you hit the nail on the head there, it's important to remember that in 1938, the primary method of entertainment was definitely radio. Everybody had a radio in their home. Not everybody had a TV in their home yet. So just like in, let's say, um, uh, A Christmas Story, where Ralphie gathers her in the radio with the little orphan aunt, it's the same deal yeah. there. Yeah. Families would gather, gather around the radio, and and this is a perfect example of that. Um, now, if you're if you're like listening to this radio uh, program from the start, obviously you're not going to get sucked in in the same way because it starts out with you know um, it's kind of a prologue. It's read by Orson Welles, and it's really close to the opening of H.G. Wells' novel, but like Blake was talking about, the next hour of the broadcast, or half hour of the broadcast, was actually presented like in any other evening radio program, which is kind of interrupted by a series of news bulletins. And this is really what pulls people in to make them think it's real. And whether uh, people thought that the Nazis were invading or they thought that aliens were invading, they thought some shit was going down regardless. Um, and again, the amount of people who were panicked by this is in dispute, and it will always be in dispute. You're never going to be able to prove this. You know, there's reports that the newspapers definitely blew that out of proportion. But we do know for a fact that there was something going on there. So um, we can at least agree with that. You know, regardless of the scale of how freaked out people were, we know it was. And, you know, the right, first right. bulletin. I was going to say, the first few bulletins that we talked about there, they're kind of, and this is what makes it, like, feel so real, because there's some boring parts of this, but it's boring on purpose. Um, the first few bulletins, they're interrupted by, like, a program of dance music, and we're sitting there, like, like getting lulled into a false sense of security by this thing. And you've got a, a series of, like, hot explosions observed on Mars, and this is really where things start to take off, at least slowly. And you've got this professor, Professor Pearson, um, and, and you've got this um, supposedly unrelated report of like an unusual object falling on a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. And then, you know, of course, this is 
most people's first experience of Grover's Mill because it is a very it is small town USA and I mean super small town. Not a big town at all. Had you ever even heard of Grover's Mill if it wouldn't be for the War of the Worlds Lake? I mean, let's be honest. Uh, probably not. And to be fair, I know what it's like to be in a small town. You know, when I wrote the first, my first two books, I was living in Adams, which had a population of like 864 people or something like that. So I get small town. You know, obviously Adams had the Bell Witch Plantation, and this this place had, you know, the War of the Worlds. So. Absolutely. Well, um, then after, you know, you get the falling object, you get a, a like a brief musical interlude, and, and this is kind of sprinkled in at the start. It's interrupted by a live report from Grover's Mill now, where you've got police officers, crowd of curious onlookers, and, and they're all kind of surrounded, uh, they're surrounding the, the strange um, cylindrical object, basically UFO. And yeah. it kind of escalates uh, when... These tentacled Martians, and we don't know that they're Martians yet, but it kind of it kind of explains it as we go. And that's the interesting thing is, you know, in 38, 1938, it was conceivable that there could be life on Mars. Now, not so much, right? Right, right. But again, limited technology back then, you know, and and you know, pe- people's imaginations were just wide open. We didn't have the science to disprove you know, things like that. And again, you didn't have TV and all that other kind of stuff. So it's kind of like, you know, you relied on your on your imagination and limited technology. You don't, you know, at the time, it's just like, you know, growing up, I used to hear, you know, we live without air conditioning. When you don't have air conditioning, you don't know you're missing anything. Bam. You know? So. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, that's the interesting thing is that, um, the time period's just so different from ours, so you kind of have to put yourself in 1938 to really get the, um, I don't know, the, the full effect. Yeah. But when I talk about the way that these Martians look, um, if you want a good example of what they look like, watch Independence Day. That is a, a War of the Worlds remake <laughs> if there ever was one. Um, or you could watch uh, War of the Worlds by Steven Spielberg. Now, they're not Martians in that movie, and they're not Martians in Independence Day because, again, this is the whole modern twist on it because we know that there's not this type of life on Mars. But you do get the description from H.G. Wells and Orson Welles here of what these Martians look like. So anyway, these things, they're as large as a bear. They've got tentacles. They're just horrible to look at, V-shaped mouth saliva dripping from it. They come out from this cylinder, and they attack the surrounding people using this thing called a heat ray. And it, it basically cuts off the canister. I can't think of his name right now. It's like um, Carl something. Carl something. Anyway, he gets killed on the scene. But, you know, this is this is kind of followed by a series of, like, rapid, um, increasingly, like, disturbing and alarmed uh, news reports detailing, like, an alien invasion that's taking place around the world, specifically in this area. And this portion of the show actually kind of stops with another live report describing giant Martian war machines releasing clouds of poisonous smoke in New York City. And these giant war machines, again, described in the H.G. Wells novel, The Tripods. And I think that's what... I think this is the... um, 
the tripods are kind of what this story is most known for. I mean, even the look of the aliens is something if you ask somebody on the street, they wouldn't know. But tripods, I feel like that's pretty um, pretty connected to the story, don't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, especially think of uh, the weapons. I mean, think of Star Trek, tricorder. You know, bam. You know, and, and like, you know, instruments, space instruments. Like, seems like that uh, War of the Worlds influenced not only an entire generation of writers, but an entire generation of uh, television, you know, series creators and stuff. I mean, I, I would have almost ventured to say that without World of Worlds, Star Trek and Star Wars might not have been what they were in those areas with weaponry and, you know, space ideas and stuff like that. You make a good point. Um, and, and to further your point from earlier about how the realism of this broadcast, you know, they don't get their first radio break until after you've got these clouds of poisonous smoke in New York City. So a whole lot of stuff's gone down before you even get your first break in this. So if you tune in uh, 10 minutes into the radio broadcast and you hear, uh, you know, newspaper reporters at the scene of a um, of a flying saucer crash and then... You hear everybody getting wiped out. What are you supposed to think? This is before the times where people were skeptical of such things. It's, you know, it's kind of like people that are like, um, you know, that we all mock the Salem witch trials, and I go back to our little uh, pod, or our podcast from the 16th that I was on, and, you know, we all mock, you know, the people from that, but, like, in 1692, witchcraft was real. The, you know, the devil was real. All that shit was real. It was undisputed. This wasn't something where it was like, you know, it's just kind of an opinion. It's a radical opinion. Everybody fucking believed it. So, same deal here. I mean, if they're telling you it on the radio and it's presented like it's real, why wouldn't you believe it? You know? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And again, we're talking about time periods here. Salem, Massachusetts, 1692, there wasn't television and newspaper and Twitter and internet and all that other bullshit. It was just word of mouth, you know, taken from people that were deemed to be credible sources. And when you don't have any other source to question that, you don't know anything different, like we said earlier with air conditioner, when you don't know something exists, you can't miss it. You know, you can't want it. You can't need it if you don't know it's there. So people turn and tune into this radio station, they hear about people getting killed on the scene and tentacled monsters coming out of the a spacecraft dripping saliva and heat rays, they're probably sitting there thinking, what in the actual fuck is going on? You know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And again, it was tumultuous times. You know what I mean? If something like this had hit right after 9-11, think about what people would be thinking had this never existed. And then something like this comes out where it's presented as fact, at least for the first part. And people are just... You're influenced by it. what you know, absolutely. If, right. If... if if a world of worlds hadn't happened, and 9/11, you know, obviously did happen, and just in that timeline, if 9/11 had occurred and world of worlds had not, and you got uh, some kind of a broadcast about a flying foreign object crashing into a building and it getting blown up, mm -hmm. or you know, there's something like that, people are going to think, oh my God, this is a recurrence of this past event. Because they, that's, they only know what's around them. They only know what's in the news around them, what they hear and what they see, you know? Yeah, I think yeah. it's kind of a great precursor to, like, 
uh, and this is a Twilight Zone episode, and I, I know you are you like Twilight Zone. I don't know if you're a huge fan, but the monsters are due on Maple Street. So yes. if you're familiar yes. with that episode, I mean, it's all about, you know, suggestion. You know, all it takes is to sprinkle that, you know, little bit of doubt in people, and they... Paranoia at its time. I think it works. Weapon. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. weapon. Uh, and I wasn't glorifying or, or just to, for, to clarify for anybody listening, uh, 9-11, I'm not making fun of that incident. I'm merely pointing out that if something like World of Worlds had not happened and did happen in a post-9-11 world, the only thing we could think of as a collective society would be like, oh, you know, this seems familiar to something we already know, meaning a disaster where some, something has hit a building and there's a great loss of life. And all that, I was merely pointing out we only know what we know, what we learn around us in our environment. So I just wanted to clarify that because I didn't want it to be construed as I was poking fun at, or, or making light of 9-11 because that's not the case. I don't think you came off that way at all, but you know how people are. So fair enough. It's good you gave that disclaimer. Um, okay, so the second half of the show, it's more of a, you know, the typical – um, conventional radio drama format. So if you only listen to that that part of it, you wouldn't think anything's amiss. But again, it's all about the first half. But anyway, in the second half of the show, just kind of do the long and short of it. You know, uh, it follows the survivor. Again, Professor Pearson is who we're talking about, dealing with kind of the aftermath of the invasion and the Martian occupation of their Earth. I mean, all this shit goes down really fast. It's like boom, 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 boom. And just like in the original novel, the story ends with the discovery that the Martians have been defeated by germs rather than the humans, basically is killed by the common cold. And, you know, they did a spinoff of that in Independence Day when it, uh, a computer virus <laughs> is the thing that takes them down. Or so my idea, wife pointed out, signs with water. You know, water killed yeah. the aliens in signs, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Same type of thing, though. Coordinated attack across the entire world, you know, with these um, objects that have landed all over the place. It is very similar. It's it's amazing the the influence that War of the Worlds, the story, and not just the radio broadcast, have had, you know, over time. And you know, this was only a 60-minute broadcast, but I feel like it's it's effects are still being uh, felt to this day. I mean, the illusion of realism was kind of, again, furthered because Mercury Theater in the Air was was holding a show without commercial interruptions. And again, let me reiterate this. The first break in the program came almost 30 minutes after the intro. So that's a long time to go and go and go. Uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. For the, uh, the, the performers, think about that, you know, without a break. Well, but then again, you've got to see performer like, you know, Orson Welles, who was already a a, a classically trained actor who's used to uh, to doing stuff like that, which this basically sort of put him on the map even even more because this is pre-Citizen Kane. I mean, uh, if I remember correctly, so I mean, th- this kind of put him on the map. But as an actor, he was used to giving these impressively long monologues and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it was a bit of a. I think it was more, in my opinion, and this is where we differ, Travis. I think it was a bigger thing for the audience to have to deal with than the performers because these performers are used to it. But these people at home, they're just listening. They're used to having commercial breaks and stuff, and all of a sudden there's not any, and they're afraid to tune away because they're afraid they're going to miss some catastrophic thing happening because they weren't listening. It's 
craziness, the fear, the anxiety, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And our country was rife with it at that time. I, I believe it was during the Depression, you know? The 30s was the yeah. Depression. I don't remember how long it went on, but 38 seems appropriate. Oh, we were still feeling the effects. I think the major depression was over. We were still recovering as an economy, as a country, you know? Mm-hmm. And it should be mentioned that this actually took place between 8 and 9 p.m. Eastern, so prime time. And, uh, yeah. The popular legend goes that uh, some of the radio audience may have been listening to the Chase and Sanborn Hour with Edgar Bergen. And what happened is they tuned into War of the Worlds during a musical interlude, and then so they missed the clear intro that the show was a drama. And then, but the thing about that is, you know, modern research kind of suggests that that only happened in rare cases. But again, it still proves that there was an impact there. And then, of course, in the days after the adaptation where this aired, you know, you had it widespread, like just people pissed, upset in the media. Now, you know, the program's news bulletin format was described as deceptive by some of the newspapers and public figures. Let me just say also that newspapers had a reason to call it that because the radio was the enemy to them. It was hurting, you know, print because that was the primary source of news. And then radio comes around. It's kind of like what the Internet has done to the newspapers. The newspapers have just dealt with all sorts of different forms of media for years and years and years, and really this was the for, first alternative to newspapers, wasn't it? Uh, well, besides te- you know, television, again, you know, you had radio was the direct enemy of, of newspaper, and then television was the direct enemy of radio, and then the Internet was the direct enemy of television. So it's kind of like a vicious cycle, you know what I'm saying? It is. Everything's trying to get ahead of everything else, and the newspapers are just far behind. And it's amazing to me that newspapers even still exist. I still feel it as an author. As somebody that sells best-selling books, I still feel it. You know, because there are people, I still get fans asking me all the time, well, when is this going to be released to Kindle, or when is this going to be released to to tablet form? And I forget, not everybody is, is, and I'm not saying I'm anti-technology, but when it comes to books, to me, there's nothing like feeling a real book, smelling a real book, turning a real page. There's just something, there's nothing like that to me. And it might be because I'm old and hard. It might be because I didn't have a tablet growing up. It might be because I don't have a tablet now. Or it could be because I don't care for the idea of reading a book uh, by, turn, by touching the screen because we're also attached to our telephones and tablets anyway. You know, it could be any number of things. But even today, we still feel that writers especially, the 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 main competition is something digital, like a tablet, or you know, or, or a PDF copy of something, or e-reader. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's my same feeling about like all these people have digital movies online. I would rather possess the movie. You know what I mean? I would rather possess Same here. it. I would rather have the DVD. Whatever form it takes, I would rather possess it. I mean, have you heard about Apple supposedly, like, wiping out a bunch of people, you know, like, people own a bunch of movies? And then they just, without warning, deleted a bunch of their movies, and then they're just fucking gone. Which That's tragic. About, yeah, we're just not at that point yet. You know what I mean? Maybe sometime down the line, maybe 10 years from now, I'll get to that point, but I'm definitely not prepared for that. Not me, me neither. As as children of the of you know media like that, as horror fans, as people that are into 
fulfilled as we are and as so many others are, that's a tragedy because, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. You know, building up my movie collection. You know, we talk about build, building up our collections and what movies we scored at what thing. I just got a three-pack on DVD in this neat little steel book type thing. It's Ed Gain with um, not Kane Hodder. Uh, it's Ed Gain with um, oh, Steve Rosebach. And then I got uh, Gacy with Mark Holton, uh, you know, Mark Holton. And then I got Dahmer with Jeremy Renner. I got a three-pack of these on DVD for like eight bucks. And it's a, it was amazing. And to think that these could be ripped out from underneath me, uh, you know, or whatever, or, or I think to think that I would want to watch them digitally on some tablet or on something like that. To me, there's nothing like sitting down in front of a movie with a snack and your wife or your chick or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whatever, friends, and watching something like that. It, it makes it seem cold and distant and inhuman. It also makes it seem sort of disrespectful to people that make this stuff because they intend on an audience sitting and watching it. They don't want to know that an audience is experiencing it the way they experienced it making it. And to think that you're reading it, you know, watching it on a tablet or downloading some movie on Voodoo or whatever, uh, it just seems kind of disheartening. But anyway. <laughs> it's okay. It was, a, it was a good rant to go off on, and I uh, agree with you. <laughs> I apologize to you and the listeners. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I was listening intently, so don't worry. Um <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I really liked about this, and I didn't get into this, you know, you get the whole story of War of the Worlds by H.G. Uh, Wells, but, you know, uh, with an American twist in Grover's Mill as opposed to England. But at the end, the Orson Welles touch, and this is obviously just Orson Welles to a T. Um, at the end, he comes on after the story of War of the Worlds, and here's what he says, and I have to quote this because I just enjoy I enjoy it a lot. I, I always listen to this part, and I listened to it earlier today, and I quoted it on our Facebook page, and I just think it's fantastic. And I have to tell you, I, I, I don't know if I've told you this before, but I have two heroes in the in the world of, like, I don't know, uh, media or uh, horror or whatever. Rod Serling and Orson Welles are my heroes. So much as I love John Carpenter, as much as I love Wes Craven, all those guys, George Romero, those are my heroes, Orson Welles and, and Rod Serling. So a little biased when it comes to this whole thing. But uh, Orson Welles says at the very end, uh, this is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up as a sheet, up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying, boo, starting now we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night. So we did the next best thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You'll be relieved, I hope to learn that we didn't mean it, and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember the terrible lesson you learned tonight, that grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch. And if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Just good shit. Like, you know he wrote that, and he delivered it way better than I just did. <laughs> you know? And he probably, because he was, I mean, he, he was very, you know, very, uh, from what I understand, very very nice, very talented man, but he probably 
wrote that and, and read it back to myself and thought, wow, I would have, you know, this is this is good. I like this because it sort of sums up the uh, the American situation at the time, you know, with all these fears of, you know, invaders coming and pillaging the country and with the threat of war and, you know, violence and the loss of jobs and, and, you know, big business coming and wiping out everything. And, you know, there he basically put all that in words himself instead of, you know, and then put a lighthearted spin on it. I think that's something only Orson Welles could have done, and God bless him for that, wherever he is. Uh, you know, uh, listen, entertainment is better because of him. Absolutely. You know, and, uh, you know, he was only 23 years old, twenty maybe 22 years old. I think 23. 23 years old when he did this broadcast. I wouldn't have been able to pull that shit off at 23. I wouldn't mature enough. That just shows you know, the talent, and It just shows the talent. That just it was, it, It's breathtaking to think that that young to deliver, you know, a talent, you know, not only in a, in a good way to, to deliver uh, entertainment, but to deliver something that had already been a hit once and then turn around and make it a hit again and make it memorable. People still, like we were talking about tonight, people still, 80 years on, are talking about that broadcast with him on the world of the world of worlds and the impact that it had on them, their family, and America, the world even. Uh, you know, and that just goes to show that uh, that our true art and true entertainment's not dead, and it will survive the stand the test of time. No CGI. No, no blue screen, no no cheap imitation can ever replace true art and entertainment, and none of it can ever replace a live actor, and especially a, a talented one like Orson Welles. So my hats and claws are all off to him. Uh, and uh, again, cinema and entertainment is better because he was because he was a part of it because he lived, you know. Yeah, I can't do I, you know. I can't agree with you enough about that. He's just a fucking legend. Um, but, you know, like the aftermath of this whole thing, so interesting. I encourage anybody that can get a hold of some of these documentaries. You can find most of them on YouTube about, you know, this whole thing. It's so interesting just to hear about the reaction from the media and things of that nature. I was watching some of the interviews with Orson Welles about the whole thing, and you could just tell how he was working the media. And it was so impressive in 1938 to see a guy that was really just kind of holding the media in his palm. And he's giving them exactly what they wanted, but you could tell that he was just full of shit. And I loved him for it. I loved Orson Welles because he's telling the media exactly what they want to hear, but he doesn't mean any of it, not any of it. He's telling them about the responsibility of radio and that, you know, that that, that hopefully this is a lesson for the future. And he's, you know, he he's given this interview at the age of 23. What a genius he was. You know, he's given this interview, and it's completely garbage. And it's so fantastic, though, because it's – they're buying into it. They're eating it all up. And then I listened to an interview today when he was 60 years old, and he's like, and of course it was all bullshit. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I knew it was bullshit when I heard it. <laughs> it was just amazing, you know, to, to see him. And that's the thing even then is that, you know, the, the media is, is, they do their own thing. And so for somebody to just kind of manipulate them the way he did, it, it's kind of staggering. 
because the media can make or break you, but he didn't give a damn. He was going to work them. Absolutely, he he gave he gave no no damn about any of it. He wanted to do his job, and his job was to entertain and feel like he did something worthwhile to the art. And uh, of course, he he was full of shit about it, you know. And he was honest with himself about it. He pulled he pulled a, a fast one on America. Um, at 23 years old, he had America eating out of the palm of his hand. Uh, you know, scared to death that there was going to be a, a intergalactic, you know, space war on their hands, and that the Earth was going to be decimated and left in smoldering ruin. Um, <laughs> he, he he was a genius for that, and then to point it out all those years later in his older age and be like, well, of course it was, you know, of course it was bullshit. It just shows you he knew he he's what we what we call what in the wrestling business. He's one of those that knows how to give a good interview, knows how to work the mic. He was one of those yep. guys. <laughs> he was a genius. He, he was like a Paul Heyman before Paul Heyman. Um, you know, it's interesting, like I just mentioned, he was initially, you know, apologetic about the supposed panic his broadcast had caused and pri- privately fuming that newspaper reports of lawsuits were either greatly exaggerated or totally fabricated. Wells later embraced the story as part of his personal myth. He says... Houses were emptying, churches were filling up from Nashville to Minneapolis. There was wailing in the streets and the rending of garments, he told Peter Bogdanovich years later. He just he really loved the fact that people were, you know, even buying into the fact that it was as much of a panic as they claimed. Absolutely. And, I love and it. again, yeah, it's just, it speaks to his, his uh, talent, it speaks to his uh, character. It speaks to his personality. It speaks to everything that made him what he was uh, as as an entertainer and a person. He was one of the he was a very smart man, one of the smartest. Uh, but he also knew how to deliver exactly what audiences wanted to hear. That's what he was paid for. He was an actor. He was supposed to make you feel a certain way, to make you believe his situation, to make you believe him, not only believe him, make you want to help. And he did that yeah. in droves, you know. Yeah, definitely. And you know, um one of the one of the documentaries or movies that I watched uh regarding this whole thing was in nineteen seventy five ABC actually aired the movie The Night That Panicked America, which if you ever hear the term The Night That Panicked America, this is what it's referring to. It's not just the movie, it's a a quote about this night. Um and it's regarding the effect that the radio drama had on the public using fictional but typical American families of the time. It's kind of a cool movie. Again, it's just one of many cool documentaries out there. Um, and some more in- information about this. You know, the New Jersey township of West Windsor, where uh, Grover's, Grover's Mill is located, actually commemorated the 50th anniversary of the broadcast in 1988 with four days of festivities, planetarium shows, a panel discussion, a parade, burial of a time capsule, a dinner dance, film festivals devoted to H.G. Wells and Orson Welles, and the dedication of a bronze monument, the one I talked about earlier that I've been to, uh, you know, kind of commemorating the fictional Martian landings, and then uh, just all sorts of shit like that. And then in uh, the 75th anniversary of the War of the Worlds was marked by an international rebroadcast 
with an introduction by George Takai in an episode of the PBS documentary series, American Experience, and I've watched that as well. But what I want to get into, I want to give a cheap plug to another podcast out there or another podcast, you know, show. It's called Audio uh, Drama Revival. Uh, so for the 75th anniversary of War of the Worlds, for them, what they did, Blake, and again, this was five years ago now, is they um, they did a contest, okay? And it's for people who do audio drama, which I like. I don't know if you ever listen to audio drama, Blake, but I think it's fun. I think it's cool. It takes you back in time, you know? Kind of like the Mercury oh, yeah. did. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I play stuff like that for Isla and Hazel every single night. Like, Isla's scared to listen to War of the Worlds anymore. No shit. She had nightmares about tripods. <laughs> I'm not making that up. So, like, she wants to listen to The Mummy or Frankenstein or Dracula or Sleepy Hollow, but no War of the Worlds. Anyway, um, so for the 75th anniversary, they did a contest, and they were supposed to... Um, uh, the podcasters or audio drama people, their job was to create a War of the World style broadcast to where it's, you know, it's not the same story of War of the Worlds, but it's something similar in broadcast, maybe in the same vein of War of the Worlds. And and one group, and I thought this was the best one. I don't know if it won. I can't remember because the website's no longer up. But it was fantastic. They did one from the Martians' perspective, which you wouldn't think to do, you know? Right. Oh, no, 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 no. No, you wouldn't think to do that at all. That's that's something else I love when things, when you get to hear it from another point of view, you know, another person's interpretation of, of a classic story, you know? And that's, yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things that was cool about it is that, you know, you, it's coming from this Martian perspective. And I'm not spoiling anything because I'm not even sure anybody can find this anymore. Um, the Martians, they come to Earth thinking that, you know, they come to Earth under orders. Sound familiar? Uh, fucking Nazis. They come to Earth under um, orders. They're told to wipe out anything that's there and turn it into red weed. Now, if you know the original story of War of the Worlds, this red weed is basically like what they're turning our, our grass and all that shit into. So anyway, they're doing this, and as they do it, they start realizing, holy shit, there's life on this planet. And not only is it life, it's living, thinking life. You know, us is what they're realizing. So they're telling their, their commanders, they're like, um, you know we're doing this and we realize that there's life on this planet, actual, like, uh, what do you call it, Blake? I mean, there's a, a term for life like that, you know. Um, intelligent life? Yeah, I mean, it's intelligent right. life, but there's more, I think there's a better term for it that I can't think of right now, but you know what I mean. So anyway, yeah. they're telling their commanders that, and the commanders are like, proceed with plans. And it's like, you can feel that these Martians are, like, not happy about what they're doing, but they're doing it anyway. And it made me really feel like this whole argument about the Nazis, about what they were doing and whether they were just under orders or whether they wanted to do it. And whether it's even relevant, whether they wanted to or not. You know what I mean? Because they did it anyway. And that's the whole thing about these Martians. And then, of course, just like the original story, you hear them get sick and die. But it's just an interesting retelling of the War of the Worlds story, but from a perspective from the Martians. 
And I think it's really fun. I wish I could fucking find the link anymore. The links are all dead on that War of the World 75 website. But there was another one too, Blake. Um, of course, you know Herbert West from Reanimator, right? Yes. Jeffrey Combs, yep. Well, somebody did a story where, um, so the Martians attack, and of course, uh, Her- Herbert West is somehow in the middle of this whole thing, and at the end of it, you know, it, it's a lot of comedy, and the end of it, though, like, they find a, a tripod that's, that's you know, done its thing, it's fallen finally because they've been sick, and then when he gets in there, he's ready to do a dissection, and... Um, He's like, uh, he's like, oh wait, this one's still alive. Get me my vivisection tools, and he's all excited because the Martian's still alive. And the story goes off the air with him drilling into the Martian, and you hear it screaming. Kind of great. <laughs> but just good shit out there. I mean, there's so many just different things that this has influenced. Again, gotta give props to H.G. Wells. Blake, um, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but if you ever get the opportunity, you can also find this on the Mercury Theater website. There is a radio interaction between H.G. Wells and Orson Wells. It's the only time it ever happened. It's the first time and only time where they were, you know, able to talk to each other. And it was just really interesting to hear those two talk to each other. Oh, I don't doubt it, man. <laughs> I don't doubt it. You know, I love that shit. But uh, Blake, I have to tell you, um, about two, uh, on Thursday last week, they did a uh, radio broadcast of this, you know, War of the Worlds, but they did it with different people, you know, acting it out. I didn't get yeah. to go. I really wanted to um, at one of our local theaters. I really wanted to go. I thought it would have been amazing. I didn't get to go. I, I, I feel sad that I didn't get to go. It's just been a busy time. But uh, how cool is that, man? And there were different places, like uh, somewhere in Indiana was doing, like, the actual broadcast of it um, live. Just I just think it's great that, like, it's still remembered and still honored after all this time, after 80 fucking years, dude. I know. It speaks volumes about where people, you know... Uh, people, how they come together over a certain thing like that. And that's another reason we love movies, you know, films. They bring people together, you know. Even if it's just for one little, you know, two hour, an hour and a half, two-hour movie, for that time, you're all experiencing this together. All your all your reactions are 100% genuine. And it's the only time you'll ever be with those, same, with those people in that room and experience that together. Because I guarantee you, each time you go see a movie, it's never like the first time you saw that movie. You know, that's just like for me. The first time I saw that Ron Elm Street is a lot different than the last time that I saw it. You know, you you never forget your first. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. When it comes to that. And, and that's something, 80 years later, we're still talking about an hour-long radio drama that, um, you know, swept the nation and influenced countless uh, books and, and short stories, television series, you name it. I mean, look at V. Martin yes. come to Earth, yes. masquerading as good as good guys, and then end up wanting to harvest the planet for its workforce because their own home planet is dying. You know, and, and there you there there you go. That's a complete. That's that's a t- total homage to War of the Worlds in its own way. 
and also there's some you know Nazi Germany allegories in there too with the the uniforms and the way the visitors look and how they act and such. But again, those influences, clear as crystal, plain as day, they're there. Absolutely. And you know, um, I want to throw out one one more adaptation. Uh, that I, I wasn't even aware of. Last year, November 12, 2017, there was a new opera based on War of the Worlds that premiered at Walt Disney Concert Hall, and it was on the streets of Los Angeles. Uh, the music was composed by Annie Gosfield, who was commissioned by the Los Angeles Philharmonic, directed by Yuval Sharon, and narrated by, check this out, Sigourney Weaver. The opera eliminated the boundary between Concert Hall and the city streets. streets. Uh, three defunct air raid sirens located in parking lots in L.A. were repurposed into public speakers to broadcast a live performance from Walt Disney Concert Hall based on Orson Welles' infamous 1938 radio drama. I think that's kind of awesome. Just, you know, Sigourney Weaver even. I mean, these people know where all this fucking greatness comes from. You know what I mean? Uh, to paraphrase Jim Ross, they know how to put asses in seats, don't they? <laughs> oh, indeed. Or whoever that was. So, I, you know, it's a slobber knocker. How about that? That's definitely Jim Oh, no, no, it was Jim Ross because he said the only thing that mattered to him was uh, it didn't care who wins, didn't care who loses, as long as um, uh, as long as long there's asses like every foot. But You know what I mean? I, I remember what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what are the kids for Halloween this year, Blake? What kids? Your kids. My my children. Uh, yeah. Well, my oldest my oldest did Halloween sort of early at his at his dad's. Uh, my youngest, again, with him being so young, we didn't really go out and do a Halloween thing this year because you know even the churches and even the community centers and places like that that were doing a trunk or treats, they're wanting to do that at like six o'clock. So you go pick up a four year old. And from daycare, go get him home, get him dressed up in his costume, take him out there, do some candy, then leave. What time are you looking at? You're looking at at least 8 o'clock, if not 9 o'clock. And then you've got an angry child who's tired, who wants the candy that you're not going to give him because it's too close to bedtime. So <laughs> well, essentially what he's going is, what, he, what he's going to do, and you know that's logical, so go through it in your head, it makes total sense. Um, uh, what he's doing is he's going to his daycare tomorrow, and he's bringing some some little treat bags, you know, uh, graham crackers, ghost-shaped marshmallows, and uh, Hershey bars, you know, and little s'mores for all his little friends in daycare. And, and there you go, man. So there's a little bit of trick-or-treat for, for him. And without having to get out and fight the traffic and things from the treats that are ridiculously out of control, some aggressive people, some of these things. Kids, you know, kids and parents both shoving and pushing and yelling and, I don't want to deal with it. But I don't know. Let me go back to what you asked, the real question. I don't know what the oldest was, but the youngest is a Power Ranger. He is uh, one of the, the Blue Ranger from the new film, or the newer film. And that's the suit that wanted, so that's the suit that we bought him. Um, let's see. Isla tonight was Winifred Sanderson from Hocus Pocus. Uh, wife did a hell of a job with that. Um, and then Hazel was Snow White. 
because uh, that's what she wanted to do. Originally, we were going to have my wife and the girls be the Sanderson sisters, but it only turned out to be Iowa because the fucking costumes cost too much. <laughs> they really do. It's like uh, costumes are expensive, costumes. yeah. Yeah, costumes are ridiculously expensive. But please uh, give my give my regards to Mrs. Denton, um for her fine work. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, I know by the way you're talking about it that uh, I'm sure she made it super memorable for the ki- for them as you did because you guys love your kids and your kids are ridiculously, disgustingly cute. I hate it because um, every time I see them, <laughs> I want to hug them and my wife will try to play with them at random shows that I'm doing and random shows where I meet you guys. She'll walk up and like, I know those babies and just like proceed to like pick up your kids and play with them. I'm like, Lisa, you can't do that. Not in this politically and socially charged climate right now. You cannot walk up to somebody you don't know and touch their kids. And she's like, I but I do know them for you. <laughs> do yeah, what? she knows me. It's all good. She knows me. Oh, I, I know. I just, I, just, I just bust her Hazel's ass about it, you know. Oh, and oh true, yeah. I should mention, he was a little vampire, too. He was a little Yeah, Dracula. he kind of is that way. He, he, the little ones like that are kind of bloodsuckers in a way, you know, the money and everything else. I mean, Jesus, you know what they're saying now. <laughs> Chrome statue. You know what they're saying? <laughs> you know what they're saying, man? If you take that, take Truett and, and raise him to 18, no college, just, just I know he's I know he's going to go. Mom and dad are going to force him. I know that. Or they're going to, you know, push for it. But just say you don't pursue him to college. Say you raise him from birth to 18. $245,000 on average to raise a child from birth to 18 with no college. Oh, Lord. Fuck that. That'll, that'll make you want to drink me. for it. <laughs> oh, good thing I'm already drinking or else I'd be more upset There you about go. It, there, you, there you go. He's going to be like, damn it, I Speaking wish of, would have never called into this show. <laughs> did you see that uh, I took Island to see Hocus Pocus at the theater the other day? No, I didn't. I haven't, to be honest. This is the first time in a while that I haven't really been on Facebook, man. I've been busy every week shipping books. I've made friends with the post office. And uh, I bet you have. <laughs> spent a lot of time there. Spent a lot of time there, so I haven't really been on uh, Facebook all that much. I've seen a couple of things, but uh, I haven't seen anything recent. But I did not know that you took you took to see the movie. That's awesome. Um, question for you. Yeah. Uh, have you seen the new Halloween yet? <clears throat> no, I have not. Uh, that, that doesn't mean me I'm sad. not going to. It doesn't mean. I'm not going to. Uh, what it means is that with a wife about to have an extreme surgery like she's about to have uh, and when is not that? be working, it's going to be November the 14th. Um, and they're, they're talking, well, I'll put it to you this way. The doctor's already given her about, it's so intensive that they've given her at, at least three weeks off, if not six weeks. Oh uh, so, so it's a big deal. So that's sort of what, because I, I canceled my Las Vegas uh, appearance because of that news um, and because of that that happening because I need you know I needed to be here for her because she was so upset that she couldn't go and she's just in a lot of pain man so I couldn't I couldn't it wouldn't have been right of me to one make her go and drag her through all of that and two go by myself because one I've already been to Vegas by myself and I had a great time but I wanted to experience it with her and two it wouldn't have been fair for me to leave her home hurting and me be off somewhere because I would not have been able to have a good time. You know, you know so as, hard, as much as it pained me, you know, and a lot of fans were like, wow, man, I was really looking forward to seeing you. And 
was like, yeah, I know, I know. Um, family comes first, buddy. Yeah, I mean, and my fans are family to me, and you know, like that too. I mean, I would not expect a fan that has had surgery or been sick to hop out of the hospital bed or out of the sick bed and come out to see me while they're still hurting. Of course not. Your health is precious. You only get to live this life once. Take care of yourself. Open other opportunities, and, and and you know, so that's I sort of canceled all you know that that, and then you know I haven't canceled anything else, but that was that was a big one. You know, so that's why I haven't done anything, like I haven't went to see anything. Uh, we've started watching things. You know, we've done some binge watching on some new horror, the, namely The Haunting of Hill House and, you know, all of that. But, no, we haven't seen the new Halloween yet. I plan on it. It's just not something I can take my kids to see. You know, I would need to oh, yeah. see that with her. So I take it you've seen it because I know you have. Twice. Actually, one and a half times. So I was going to go see it in IMAX today, but, you know, life got too busy. Um, I'm an yeah. A-list member, so, I mean, I get three movies a week. Last week I went to see it. I don't know if you saw this or not, Blake, but while I was at the theater, I was about 60% of the way through the movie, and all of a sudden the lights come on and they, they tell us, hey, uh, this, this theater's on lockdown. There was a, a shooting across the street at Kroger. So nobody can leave for until the police give us the go-ahead. Anyway, it was some piece of shit who shot a black guy, and he was some redneck asshole who basically deserves to be shot in the head, and it's a shame that they apprehended him and didn't shoot him in the head. So, yeah, I've seen Halloween one and like 1.6 times now. I'm going to try to watch it again this week. So I had planned to Well, I can't today. say that I advocate. I can't say that I advocate more violence. I mean, I hate what happened happened, but um, I do. I don't like that, that. I don't like that it happened. I don't, you know, somebody should not have lost their life, but I don't advocate any more violence. You know, there's too much of it. There was something like that that happened out not far from my neck of the woods at a dollar store, if you can believe it. Um, uh, the cops were out there, and apparently a guy had been arguing with his girlfriend, and he was, according to, pull, to reports that I've read, he was on mess, and he he uh, beat up his girlfriend. She got away. He jumped on top of a car, punched in the side of a car with a terrified woman inside of it, went inside, picked up a stool, assaulted an old, an elderly lady with a stool, and then hit a kid, and then the police tased him on the way out. He is lucky uh, that that's all that happened to him uh, because I know there are some people out there that were rooting for the cops to take him out and, and rooting for other people to do it. I, I don't advocate hurting anybody, but hurting a child and hurting an elderly person like that, uh, that was just really awful. It was terrible. It was horrifying to just think that stuff like that happens that close. You know, and it's not one we go to or anything, but I just, I know where it is. You know? Fuck them. Put That's a right. bullet in their head. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm at that point. Put a bullet in their head and put it on live TV for my amusement. Fuck them. I'm done with people like this. Seriously. Fuck them. That can't be a pacifist. These people deserve death. That's just my opinion. So, I'm done with it. I'm, I'm serious. Like, I'm, I'm sick of these people. There's just no reason to be these type of people. So, I mean, if I have to go Old Testament on them, then so be it. Not me specifically, but you get my point. I'm just done with it. 
I mean, I realize two wrongs don't make a right, but at least that person's not here to make another wrong. So I guess I kind of have the, you know, the comic book character, the Punisher? Yes, Frank Castle. Yeah, I'm aware. So him and Batman, like, it was this text with superheroes argument or something where Batman tells them, I can't kill this guy because then there'll be, you know, the same amount of murderers in this world. And Punisher says, that's why you kill lots and lots of murderers. (laughs) And I'm like, that is fucking gospel right there. That is true. Anyway. Spoken spoken like a true asshole, (laughs) the Punisher. (laughs) Fuck him. Uh, so anyway, you know, I wanted to do a solid hour on this War of the Worlds show, and I feel like we did it pretty pretty good justice. Um, do you have anything, any closing thoughts on the whole thing? I know we've only been on here a little over an hour, but, you know, I need to go pass out and die here shortly because I'm exhausted and uh, I've been drinking, and that, that didn't go well for me anymore. I'm getting fucking old. Well, we're going to have to fix that because, uh, you know, the, the part of the front of the show is doing more than is doing more than, you know, an hour. That's part of the that's part of the fun. But uh, uh we'll, no, we'll I don't do have when any, we uh, whenever we have a uh usual start time instead of ten o'clock or nine o'clock your time. You know what I mean? This is late for me. Hey, this was your idea. <laughs> it was. But it's because I didn't have much of a choice in the matter. True. Uh, I don't have any I don't have any more closing thoughts or anything to say about that, but I did want to tell you that story before you go off there because I think it is probably yeah, yeah. The weirdest shit I've ever heard in my in my life. Uh, so there's a club. It used to be called the Starlight in Goodlettsville, Tennessee. That's about 45, 50 minutes from here. Um, so I know you went to Full Moon, right, on Sunday. Oh yeah, it, it was weird as shit too. It was a disappointing convention. I haven't heard anything else about it. Uh, I know that there were some people there. Steve Dash was there. C.J. Graham was there. Mm-hmm. I think Hague. Uh, you know, said Hague. Cameron Lynn. We met Tom Matthews. Uh, yeah, people like that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so this place is uh, this place is about 20 minutes from where that place was, from where that club is. Uh, it was called the Starlight. It was bought in 1951, converted into a country music place. It closed down mysteriously in 2014. Uh, and now it's been bought up at the Beast House, and it's one of these attractions. It's a haunted attraction where you're supposed to be able to get your money back if you make it through the, the challenge, the Beast House challenge. You know, you can pay regular admission, then you can pay the Beast House challenge admission. You make it through, and you get your 42 bucks back because that's what it costs. Um, and then you can also take a turn diving off the roof with no protection for like an extra 10 bucks. It's called the Beast Jump or something. You just jump off the roof of this place because. You're a little sicker from hell, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't do it. But uh, So anyway, this place is advertising that it's one of these haunted houses will give you your money back, but it's supposed to be so jacked up that you can't. Most people don't make it through it. Well, I got to looking, and apparently that club used to be part of a mansion that was built on that property. Uh, and uh, Isaac Ketchum was the name of the guy on the property. He was a lawyer. And he was a big-time lawyer, premier lawyer, owned a firm out there on 4th Avenue in Nashville, bought it, and basically he was a big-time historical figure in Middle Tennessee. Family were German, immigrated to Middle Tennessee, graduated from law school at 19, and, you know, all this good stuff. So he built the greatest Victorian mansion Nashville had ever seen. It took 325 men over five years to build this damn place, Okay. 
and it was nicknamed the Beast House because it was huge. So he's got all this money, buys all this firm, and then apparently one night, July 2nd, 1899, he just fucking snaps, goes into the house, murders everybody in his house. They're saying up to 56 people in this house because it was a huge mansion. We're talking probably, I don't remember, I want to say it was 11,000 square feet or something, but he murders them. In brutally, and then goes out to the barn, sets the, sets the barn on fire, and hangs himself right there where people can see it. So they have expunged any record of this guy from any, you can't do any real search on the internet about him. You have to go to the archives in Nashville, Davidson County Archives, to find even a birth record and a death record on this guy. So his house apparently was haunted after this. And when they bought the Starlight in 1951, they had had all kind of weird shit happen there. Uh, noises, people screaming, kids yelling and moaning. Sounds like, you know, uh, bombs going off inside the damn place. And all this. And now they've turned it into a damn haunted house. And they're saying that that's part of the reason why people can't get through it is because real shit is actually happening there. And the first thing I thought about was Hell House LLC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the first thing I thought about. That makes sense. That was interesting. That's a weird story. You can't find any records on this guy. He was born August 6, 1814, died July 2, 1899. So you're talking, what, he was 75 when he killed his family? That is wild, dude. That reminds yeah, me man. of the Lawson family murder. A, a, a little bit, a little bit. Okay, so this place, is, you have to go to the Davidson County Archives downtown to find anything about him. But apparently the house, the only portion left from the house that's still standing is the portion that this haunted house is in. That's the last surviving portion of it. It's 11 miles from downtown Nashville. So, I mean, he literally, he, I cannot believe that. I mean, they said there were so many bodies and there was so, much, so, so many murders. They have never been able to fully tell you how many actual people he killed in this house that night. Now, I've heard people say it was as, as little as three and as many as 56. But there's no record of how many exactly he killed. All there is record of is that there were murders in that house and he committed them. Right. Um, but they just that is crazy it. shit, man. It crazy. is, man. <laughs> I thought you would appreciate that. So, you know, we're, we're always doing shows on Lost and Family Murder, Dahmer, and all these other guys, but my home state's got some pretty jacked up history, too, so... You know, <laughs> have I told you about that movie? Um, the fuck. It's um the Gosnell, the trial of America's worst serial killer, or or yeah, something like that. I forget the full name of the movie, but Gosnell was the first name of it. It's not something I was really familiar with until I'd seen the movie. Have you heard of this, or do you remember me telling you about it? Now, it seems like I can't be 100% sure. It seems like you might have mentioned the name in passing, but I don't think we went into any great detail about it. So this movie, uh, I watched it at AMC. It's an independent movie. Dean Kane was in it. And um, so Gosnell was an abortion doctor, okay? And I know... You know, throwing out abortion probably brings up a big debate for a lot of people. So I'm not going to get into the debate because it's not even about the debate. This guy was killing babies. 
that were like past the legal age where it's where it's legal to perform an abortion. And okay. that movie, oh, it fucking disturbed me, Blake. Like it still disturbs me. It was hard to watch, man. I think I walked out of there crying. It was bad. Wow, that's that's right. And this is based on a true story. You know it's got to be bad if it gets that kind of reaction from you because stuff like that generally typically doesn't bother you like that, you know? Well, you know, babies, man. That's, you oh, know, yeah. I can't, I can't watch that Cemetery because of the Gage thing. I can watch all of it, but the thing to do with him. You yeah, know? that's hard. Just, that's hard. Adele, Adele Midkiff screaming, no, and you see the photos of Gage's first birthday. Gage's uh, first it's horrible, man. Christmas. Yeah, it's fucked up. It's a great movie, but damn it, I can't watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's easy for me to make light of it. Like, we shared a meme that was fucked up, and, and, like, everybody laughed about it. But literally, watching that movie is rough. But, man, when you watch a movie like this that's based on a real story about this shit that actually happened, oh, man, it's just so hard to watch. So hard to watch. So. Oh, I meant to, I meant to tell you while we're talking about, you know, killing your family and kids and stuff, this estate that I was telling you about was 40,000 square foot. Forty thousand. That's, That's huge. His, all of his, all of his family lived there. All of his extended family, the same ones that he murdered. And then, of course, after he, after his death, none of his family wanted anything to do with the damn place. So it sat in ruins for years until, until a suspicious fire in 1927 that reduced over 60 percent of the home to rubble. So I mean, they didn't want anything to do fires. With it. Yeah, Richard Fires what happened at Ed Gein's house. Forty thousand square foot murder house. <laughs> it's ridiculous, man. Crazy. So yep. Uh, yep. on a related note, did you did you uh did you see what my status was the, about four AM this morning on the Travis and Vic account? Don't worry if you didn't. Uh, I probably did, but I just forgot because, like I said, I haven't been on social media that much, uh, as much as normal. What was it? Remind me. So last night, okay, before my son woke me up, just being a baby, uh, I had a dream that I was interviewing Chris Benoit from jail. In jail, yes. In jail. (laughs) And I don't know how to describe such a thing because, you know, obviously that changes a lot of factors to what actually happened. And what my assumption was is that he was maintaining his innocence in the whole crime. And I never, whenever I was interviewing, I never got to the part, you know, um, where... Like, I never got to ask him about the murders or alleged murders, or in his case. So, it was weird, though, man. We were just, I was trying to get him comfortable. I was talking to him about wrestling, and, like, he, I got woke up before I could really get into it. But it was kind of a fucked up, it was a fucked up dream because, like, I've told you before that that, that murder, like, to this day still gets to me. And not even because of the, uh, I mean, it's horrible to kill a kid, obviously. I'm not denying that. I mean, that's a horrible thing. But, you know, just because of who it was for me, he was my favorite wrestler ever. So, to this day, it still has an effect on me. And I had a dream about it. It was weird, man. It sobered me up when I woke up. Not that I was drunk, but you get my point. It woke my ass up. Well, I mean, it's it was rough. I do remember that. I do remember what happened. I can't believe it, man. It's been 11 years um, since the whole 
since the whole thing happened. But are you one of those people, which I've never met one, and I don't mean those in the derogatories, I mean one of the conspiracy theorists, which is fine if you are, I have no problem with that. Um, I was one for years about uh, Kurt Cobain, and still to this day I'm not 100% sure that he killed himself, or at least that he pulled the trigger anyway. Um, are you one of those people that think there was more to the Kristen Wall thing than what we than what we were given by the media and by the authorities? Do you think something else happened? No, he totally did it. Okay. Yeah. I just I, wondered. I, I, no, I and, and if you were, I was no disrespect at all, buddy. You know that. No, I would love to think otherwise. I would love to. But, I mean, like, I'm just being um, dishonest with myself if I think anything but that he did it. I mean, if you listen to Nancy Benoit's sister talk about it, it's clear that Chris Benoit did it. Fucking clear. You know what I mean? She's a member of the family, and there's a lot of things that people throw out there, and she's like, don't be ridiculous. And if she's saying this, I have as much faith in her opinion as I can in anybody else's who's alive right now. You know what I mean? Everybody else who's saying shit like this, they're just crazy fucking theories. So... I mean, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. And I, you know, we all, you know, Benoit fans like me, we need to sit there and deal with it for the rest of our lives. He, he not only affected the people he knows, but he affected the people he doesn't know. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, killing and hurting a child is, is never okay, ever. But the fact that it opened up people's eyes to the drug use, steroid use and other things that happen in the sports entertainment industry like that and, and the injuries and people are always like wrestling's 100% fake it might be scripted whether we might go into that ring knowing who's going who's gonna to win who's going to lose who's going to forfeit a title who's going to vacate who's going to win it you know we might know all that but nothing can account for those instances where uh, they fall wrong or you hit your head the wrong way Owen Hart right you know, that's that's the case with that. The, it, it, accidents do happen. And even if it's planned, how many chair shots can you take before it rattles something loose? And they take unprotected chair They used to take unprotected chair shots. It's not like they were throwing up a hand every time. Oh, yeah, but, I mean, like, what? <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like, I, I don't know. It's just I don't see what good that does. I mean, throwing up hand, hand. but I, 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 well, more yeah, than I, it hit fucking straight on. I can tell you that. You know, it I, I like guess. Either way. I guess it just the whole thing stinks. The whole thing's awful. Now this thing with with Jerry Lawler and his child. Uh, uh, oh, right. yeah, that was horrible too. And you know what? I actually do think there's some sort of conspiracy there. I mean, not conspiracy necessarily, but like the idea that you don't think it was a cut and dry suicide. No, hell no. Not a, not a bit. Not a fucking bit. Because there's too many weird situations with that whole thing. And, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, but that that was a weird, weird situation. Oh, yeah, and I had to defend myself for many years when it came to when it came to Kurt Cobain and his, and his death, you know, and then finally I convinced people, look at the evidence, look at what you see, look at what the detective has shown you, look at the, sh- the shabby police work that was done. How many high-profile crimes do you know where they take the weapon in question that was used to commit a murder, even if it's self-murder, and not even analyze it for fingerprints or lift it for fingerprints until they've already cremated and buried the body of the person he killed? How, how where is he killed, often by the way? does that happen? Where did he live? 
Where did he live when that oh. happened? Uh, Cobain? Yeah. And he, he, lived, he lived in Lake Washington, uh, up there in, uh, I think it was 121 okay. Lake Washington Boulevard, a real beautiful house, not far from uh, Gates. Bill Gates had some property out there. It was a very nice area. I mean, he didn't make a whole lot of money while he was alive, but he made enough to get him a good car and get him a nice house and take care of his kids, or his kid and his wife, you know, for the time. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it was a nice area. And, I mean, there's just so much shit that goes wrong with that. Like, it's just, it's weird. And then the amount of drugs in the system and how we found a note with practicing his handwriting in the backpack, Courtney Love's backpack, where she's admitted that she's done uh, forgeries of his handwriting. And it just, and she can, you know, just like the whole fucking thing stinks. Um, Makes you say, hmm. Yep. Huh? I said, makes you say, hmm. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, he seemed, and as a father, and I'm sure you feel it as a father as well, he adored that child of his. And I don't think how, no matter how shitty life really got, how horrible touring was, how bad his stomach pain was, I don't think that he would have, even though he referenced it in the songs, I think that at one point he might have been suicidal, but the birth of his child changed his attitude because most people that knew him after the birth of a child after Francis's birth, said that he was like he was a different man, like he was on a mission, that he was, you know, the best in the best moods and best spirits he'd been in in years. Kids do that to you. I know I was in a dark place for a long time until I, you know, had my kids and, and got married and, you know, had, had a partner, and then that changed everything for me. Um, so I'm speaking from experience. I can't say for sure that was the case there, but I just, again, you know, people, I've seen all these fans raising hell about the Nirvana reunion happening, and I'm like, yeah, it's rough, you know. It's missing one one very important part of that band, uh, you know. Uh, and I've seen the reunion shows; they were fine. Uh, they were good performances. But people are just they're hardcore, hardcore uh, purists. We talk about it with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Speaking of, did you watch the Goldbergs? <laughs> uh, I have not yet, but I know Robert England looked really old as Freddy. Like, you know, like the, the video, I mean, I know he is getting up there, but like, I've never seen him look old as Freddy. I don't know if it's the makeup or just the fact that he is old. He looked, he looked very old. Um, it's, uh, it was, the makeup was sort of a hodgepodge. It was more based on a part three makeup. It was done by Robert Kurtzman of K&B Effects fame. Uh, yeah. So it's the same sort of style that he did when he did the in makeup stuff in Chicago. I want to say it was Flashback Weekend a couple of years ago, and then when he went overseas to London, up in England, and, and did some stuff. But he is getting older. I mean, he's seventy. You no, know, he'll be seventy-one this year. God bless him. Uh, I hope I get the chance to see him again because when when we were doing the interviews for the book. He was like, because I was busy doing, you know, talking to Steve Johnson and all the rest of them. And Steve Johnson, by the way, also did a World of Worlds. He did the bodies and stuff for the one that come out with, uh, I want to say it was Tom Cruise. Uh, was in it. It was like 2005. Um, that was a good World one. World of Worlds. I thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but Steve did all the bodies. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so, you know, we, I'm over there doing that. And then Mick calls me up and he's like, you know, Robert was a lot of fun. And, by the way. He wants me to give you his his warmest regards and, you know, look forward to seeing you soon. Oh, yeah. 
you can bet your ass on that. And then I couldn't get the damn Channel 2 to come in on my, out here, as you call it, bumfuck Tennessee. I couldn't get the damn <laughs> bumfuck channel to pick up. So, yeah, which, so I, uh, uh, I watched it the next day, and it is, it is worth the price of admission. Um, I don't like the sweater that they used specifically. Um, odd story, I got a book order this past weekend from Anders Ericsson the builder of Nightmare Gloves, the builder of the glove that Robert wore on that show, on that episode of the Goldbergs. That's Robert's go-to. I mean, he, Robert always sports a call. So to have a book order from him, I was like really cool because Anders and I know each other pretty decent through passing, you know, being in the horror industry, but I've never actually gotten him to, you know, he's never actually bought anything from me. Right. You know, so that was pretty cool. But it's worth watching if you haven't seen it. He's only in it for two minutes. Right. I'm <laughs> sure it's, it's on his list. You can, you can YouTube it. You can YouTube it. He, he says something really funny. He goes all Southern, specifically when he says the phrase, I'm a kill him, as in I'm a, I-M-M-A. I've never heard Freddie ever say that before. But I laughed till I thought I was going to pass out. <laughs> it was, it was great. Man, that's good shit. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, so here in November, we will uh, check in with 1986 top ten horror movies. You know, the nice thing is TalkShoe didn't kick us off this week, and I think it's because we were both on the line. I think maybe TalkShoe just does that if you're just doing it by yourself. So that's nice. Well, I, but, like I said, I will try to make sure I don't miss any more. Buddy, nobody's blaming you, so don't sweat it. I mean, Vic didn't show up either. He passed out or some shit. Anyway, oh, right, so, but I do. Normally, if Vic doesn't, I'm your go-to guy if Vic is not there. So. <laughs> and, and here you are, and I appreciate that. So um, <laughs> let's uh, let's wrap this thing up. You can email us, tnvhorror at gmail.com. You can find us or find, yeah, Twitter, Travis and Vic Horror, Instagram thing, same thing. Uh, Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures on Facebook. TravisVicHorror.wordpress.com. I've only been meaning to update that site for like three months. Eventually, I will. <laughs> but that's all I got. Oh, at phenomenal TLD on Twitter. I actually use that now. So, Blake, what you got for us? Oh, just the normal thing. Uh, uh, Facebook.com forward slash Blake Mess Horror is my official thing. You can go check out the book behind the screen. Three matches revealed. Personal website, it's available there, blakebestauthor.wixsite.com forward slash blakebesthorror. There you go, you got it. All right, man, well, peace out, and we'll talk uh, real soon, probably within a week or two. Sounds great. You have a good evening. Try to get you some sleep before Truett gets up and makes the rounds. Oh, and in the words of Colonel Cochran from Halloween 3, happy Halloween. Later. (laughs) Later. Bye-bye.